Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Uh, my name's Simon. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Turn with me to God's Word. Uh, page 1066, John chapter 4. It's a long reading, but oh my word, is it a cracker. 1066, John chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 to verse 42. I'm beginning to read at verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptized, baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You've nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come where the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? 
I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is God's words. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the providing God. We thank you that you give us all that it is that we need. We thank you that you provided a way out for Abraham. We thank you that he saw that lamb caught in the thicket and sacrificed it in its place instead of Isaac. And Father, I pray that as the Muslims in Southeast Asia, as Rich and Zoe's friends celebrate this weekend, that just as we read here that they worship what they do not know, we pray, we pray, Lord, that you would show them Jesus. We pray that you would break down the lie of Islam and that they would see in the Lord Jesus Christ that living water, that light of the world, the Savior who has come into the world. Father, I pray for great opportunities for the family. May they be able to take stories that their friends love, but show how they point to Jesus, that they may worship in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank you for all that Rich and Zoe are able to do. Uh, we pray for them as a family. Pray that you would sustain them, continue to uh, equip them and to envision them for the work that you've called them to do. Pray for the children as well, uh, that they would love to point to Jesus in all that they do. Father, thank you for them. Thank you for our link with them. And I pray that this month we would be quick to, to pray for them as they seek to minister to uh, those close to them. And Father, as we pray for distant lands, we pray for our own nation too. We pray that in the, uh, the turbulence and in the, um, the change that there is in government, I pray that you would display your sovereignty, that we would see that you are in control uh, and that whoever follows Boris Johnson uh, would look to you for guidance and for wisdom and would want to serve according to your word. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he is the true servant. And I pray that they would uh, model themselves upon him. And Father, within our church, we pray for those who are suffering at this time. Uh, we pray for those for whom uh, life is an ordeal. And we pray, Lord, that you would again display your sovereignty in their lives. Heal the sick. Bring hope to those who are without hope. And I pray that by your spirit, Lord God, you would grow the vision of the Lord Jesus in their eyes. We pray for those particularly precious to us. And just in the quiet, let's lift in our own hearts uh, those to the Lord that we particularly want to pray for at this moment. And Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you that you have provided a way 
that we may know you, that we may see Jesus, that we may call you the God of the whole universe, our Father. And I pray as Neil comes to speak, oh Lord, that you would speak through us, through your words, that each of us may know that we've met with the living God. Lord, we long to worship in spirit and in truth. And as the truth is proclaimed, may your spirit work in our hearts. Father, show us Christ, we pray, for our good and for your eternal glory. Amen. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Emily, for leading the first part of our service. Get your Bibles open if they're not. Or that passage from John chapter 4 is a long passage. We won't look at every single word of it today, but what a wonderful story of a God who saves. We think today about what is it that makes life worth living. So what is it that makes your life worth living? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Um, and we're going to see today what Jesus offers in terms of life that is absolutely worth living, life that is to the full. I've got great respect for my dad. Um, one of the reasons I really respect him is that he doesn't treat people according to their social status at all. Let me illustrate with two very different stories. Uh, the first one was about 10 years ago. The church paid for me to go to a conference in London. And my dad was working in London at the time in management in a transatlantic oil company, but not one of the big ones. And I'd arranged to meet him in a cafe after the conference finished and he finished work. And I couldn't have been happier. It's a daylight today. It was boiling hot. I was on the south bank of the Thames. I had a drink and a book. And I was really in my element. That is my kind of way to relax. But I did notice my dad was late. Now, if I'm late, that's not that big a deal. Uh, other members of the family possibly even to be expected. Uh, but my dad not. My dad is always on time. So it wasn't a thing. And I then saw him kind of running along the Thames in his suit with his briefcase in one hand, looking flustered. And I said to him, Daddy, you okay? He said, I'm so, so sorry, I'm late. And I'll never forget what he said next. He said, I was in the lift on my way down when one of the directors of BP got into the lift with me and asked me a question about whether or not I thought BP were being treated fairly in the media at this time. Now, if that had been me, and I'd met someone way more important than me, I would have led with a half apology. Sorry I'm late, but you won't guess who I just met. And I realized in that moment, that's why no one would care what I thought, because I would be pandering. Whereas my dad is not a panderer. So the fact that the director recognized him meant they valued his opinion. And it reminded me of another moment in my childhood where, do you remember the old days, some of you won't, where the phone was in the, in the hallway and was on a cord, and there was just one phone in the house. So when it rang, whoever answered it picked it up, and then you went and found the person and gave them the phone, and they had to stand there in the hallway having a conversation in a public space. Do you remember those days? Well, if you had a girlfriend, it was particularly awkward. Anyway, the phone rang. And there was a guy from our church called Tom. Now, most people in the church I went to growing up had really good jobs. But Tom was like an odd job man. He was always in and out of work. And uh, he was a lovely guy, but he was always broke. Always broke. And when I picked up the phone, it was Tom. And he asked if he could talk to my dad. 
So I went off and got my dad and then did the sneaky thing you shouldn't do as a child. I went back up the stairs and sat on the landing so I could listen into the conversation because I was interested to know why Tom would want to ring my dad. Well, it turned out that Tom's wife's dad had died and Tom didn't know what to do. He didn't understand probate. He didn't understand how to organize a funeral. And instead of ringing his pastor, he rang my dad. And I listened as there was so much mutual respect between my dad and this guy, Tom. I began to realize my dad just didn't treat people according to what job they did, how much money they had. It made no difference to him. Part of the outworking of my dad's Christian faith was if he could help, he would. Director of BP, no problem. Someone who did odd jobs for a living, no problem. If you can help, you do. You know, we're in a section of John's Gospel where that kind of attitude that I saw modeled by my dad is actually seen in the life of Jesus. There are three consecutive stories that work off a verse from John chapter 2. It says, now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. They saw the amazing miracles and they wanted more. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He could see into their hearts. It's like, we look at the outside and he looks at the inside. We look at the kind of shiny exterior and Jesus has flicked up the bonnet and knows what's going on underneath. He can see into these people's hearts. And he has three conversations with three very different people. So a couple of weeks ago, um, Simon took us through a conversation that he had with Nicodemus. I mean, that were literally like the Archbishop of Canterbury knocking on your door this evening after it gets dark and going, do you mind if I pop in? Because I want to talk with you a bit about religion. I want to get your take on the Christian faith. Now, that's what it was like for Jesus to meet Nicodemus. And next week, we're going to have the story of Jesus meeting a royal official, someone, again, important. But like if Prince Harry came up to you with a problem with Archie and asked again, what should I do? But sandwiched between those stories about people who were very important in different ways is this story about a woman who was a nobody. In fact, not only was she a nobody, but in the culture that they were in, the fact Jesus spoke to her at all was amazing. Did you pick that up when it was read in verse 9? Look at that with me. Jesus has just arrived at the well. He sat down. He's thirsty. He asked her for a drink. Look at her response. Not yes, sir. Not that would be no problem. Look at what her immediate response is. The Samaritan woman said to him, to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You see, such was the divide that Jesus even approaching her, speaking with her, was a shock to this woman. At best, he would have just ignored her. But Jesus initiates a conversation with this Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. There was a deep racism, a, a divide between them, and they did not mix. And Jesus was a man. And in that culture, men often wouldn't talk to women in public. 
Jesus was breaking numerous social taboos. But there's one more thing we need to know up front. The story tells us later. The story points out that they were there at noon. We're approaching noon, 40 minutes time. I will have stopped by then, don't worry. And like today, except far more so, it would have been blazing hot. And this woman was collecting the heavy jar of water to bring back in the heat of the day. And the reason she was doing it in the heat of the day is because she was a social outcast. Normally women would have gone together and they'd have been chatter and people have done it while it was cool, but not this woman. She wasn't welcome. So she had to go in the heat of the day on her own to collect a water jar. And it's in that moment that she met Jesus and he knew her heart. He knew what she was about. We see that in verse 18. Jesus challenges her to get her husband. We'll come back to why later. And then says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. This woman was shunned and shamed because she had had multiple relationships with multiple men. And it was known. It was known. And so she was pushed out of society. As we started this morning, I want you to think about something with me. I think a lot of us would say we're not racist. I hope we can say that and mean it. I think a lot of us would say we're not sexist. I think we'd say that and we would mean it. But I think a lot of us actually struggle not to be judgmental when someone's done things that we consider to be wrong. We have more of an attitude of, you've made your bed, and now you can lie in it. We're very slow to do what Jesus does here, and to treat people with respect if we think they no longer deserve it. But look at how Jesus treats this woman. It's just full of compassion. He doesn't treat her as she deserves. He doesn't treat her as society says she should be. He breaks all of those taboos and actually reaches her in her shame and shows her that she can have a life worth living, life to the full. Three things I want us to look at from this passage about a life that's worth living. Life that's worth living is full of the Holy Spirit of God. A life that's worth living is focused on the Father in heaven. A life that's worth living is faithful to the work of the Son. Let's look at these three things that Jesus brings to her. So Jesus pushes past the question about how he can associate with her. In verse 10 he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he throws that out there. But she mishears what he says. Now we don't find running water a big deal, right? We've all got taps in our homes. There's a couple of taps at the back of the building here. We just turn water on and it comes. But in many cultures, that's an amazing thought, that you could get water without having to fetch it. So she thinks very literally what he's offering her is some other way of getting water much more easily than going to a well in the middle of the day. That's as good as she can think. We've seen this time and again. Do you remember? Jesus says something that's spiritual, and people take what he's saying literally. So in the temple, he says... Um, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they look at the building when Jesus is talking about his body. Or Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. 
And Nicodemus is trying to figure out how he can get back into his mother's womb for a second time. Jesus isn't talking about that. And when it comes to living water, he's not thinking about that either. He's not thinking about actual water that we drink from a glass. But she can't see that. Sir, she said, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. You can't even get water out of this well, Jesus. Whatever living water you're talking about, you can't even get this water out of this well without my help. How great are you? Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, one of Abraham's grandchildren, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus pushes back. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. We know it, don't we? Don't have one glass of water or one cup of tea in the morning and you're fine. We get thirsty again. But here's something different. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling to eternal life. What is he talking about? If he's not talking about literal water, what is he talking about? What is this well within us that will satisfy Well, in a couple of chapters' time, in John chapter 7, Jesus actually explained it to a crowd. It says these words, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. And then John adds this comment, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Brothers and sisters, When we're born again, we are given the Spirit of God to dwell within us. The Holy Spirit is Jesus in you, Jesus in me. Jesus' um, Spirit within us, enabling us to live for God, not in our own strength, but in His. Reassuring us that the, the beliefs that we have are real. There's a blessed assurance that comes in receiving the Spirit of God. It's a Spirit that comes to purify. He works in our hearts to make us more like Jesus. He comes to reveal more of Christ to us in his word. If you read this book and you hear the voice of Jesus, then that is a sign that God's spirit lives in you. You can be an academic and study this book. You can be the smartest person in the whole wide world, but if you don't have Jesus, you'll never feel its power. You'll never know it speaking truth into your life without the, without the work of the Holy Spirit. And also one more thing the Holy Spirit does. He unites God's people. He unites us as brothers and sisters in this place. And he unites us with brothers and sisters around this world who trust and love and know Jesus. He creates family among us, real bonds of love. And Jesus says this spirit can come and live in anyone. In a sense, he picks someone who would be overlooked, disregarded, and unloved to show that God's spirit will dwell in anyone who has faith in him. But to get to that, to that satisfaction of knowing him, Jesus has to push past something else. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still thinking it's ordinary water. So Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come back. Now that looks like a bit of a left turn, doesn't it? It's not where we'd expect him to go next. Is he trying to deliberately shame her? Is he trying to deliberately make things difficult for her? Well, no. You see, this woman almost certainly was looking for a life based on relationships and sex 
and men. She thought she could have a satisfying life if she just found the right guy and she tried six so far. I don't know if six was a good one or not. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know she'd worked her way through quite a few men looking for someone, someone who could satisfy her, someone who could complete her, in the words of Jerry Maguire. And she hadn't found that man. You know, if you want to really know the work of the Spirit in your own life, if you really want to be full of him, then one of the first things Jesus will do and will keep on doing is showing us those things that are pushing him out of our lives and to the margins. It could be for you, it's sex and relationships, that you're perpetually looking for love. It could be for you, it's money, and actually just dream of having more. It could be for you, it's a career of being that important person in the elevator that people like me want to talk about. Could be for you as just being healthy and living a very long life and nothing else here matters. Whatever it is, it's a painful moment. You see, in that moment, this woman has a choice, doesn't she? She could tell Jesus to basically get lost. It would be rude, but she could walk off, pick up her jar and go. Leave him there. She could say, I'm going to show him. The answers I've got are within me. I'm going to prove to everyone I, I, I can make this life work. Or she could have blamed her circumstances, everything outside of her. But you know what she does is she turns to Jesus. She turns to him and says, I want to know more. I want to know more about what you're talking about here. This isn't her deflecting at all. When she gets to verse 19, she says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. She can feel that this might well be God speaking to her. And then we reach the second thing that Jesus wants to teach her. That a life that's worth living isn't just full of the Spirit of God. It's focused on the Father. It's focused on the Father. So our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, she says, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, we're not really caught up in this dispute, but it was part of the animosity between these two races, which was where's the best place to worship God? Is it here on this hill or is it in Jerusalem where you say? And her question is a bit like Jesus. If I want this living water... Do I have to become Jewish? Do I have to become like you and become a Jew? Is that what you're saying? And Jesus blows her mind. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain, not in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. You see, Jesus is saying, for a long time you've disputed, is it here, is it there? Where do we go to worship God? And Jesus says, a time's coming where it's any time, any place, anywhere. Anywhere around this world, at any moment of any day, you can worship the Father. You can focus your life on him. The story I'm going to tell you of the gospel is so big, the truth is so huge, you can base your whole life on it. And the connection spiritually between you and God is so sure and so certain, and so permanent, that you'll be able to worship in spirit and truth any time, any place, anywhere. All of life as worship of God. 
not an event. Coming to church didn't make one person a Christian. You being here this morning did not make God love you more. This matters because we can encourage one another in ways here that it's much harder to do at home, and you get to love one another. That's what makes church gatherings special is that we're family. We're family. And it's an expression of that and an opportunity to serve and worship God together. But being a Christian is so much more. It's any time, any place, anywhere, drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit of God in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your leisure, as well as in your work. He's with you. And the gospel story is so big. The story that says that God came into this world to rescue us through Jesus and to give us eternal life is so big, it touches every single aspect of life. And so Jesus offers her this. Just look at verses 25 and 26 with me. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ, the King we've been waiting for in this world for a thousand years, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Can you feel the tension in the air? This woman who's a nobody actually thinks she might be meeting the king. And then Jesus drops the bomb. He's not told anyone else this in quite this way yet. He says, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the king. And somewhere in that white space in your Bibles there, beneath verse 26 and before verse 27 begins, in that white space, she becomes a Christian. She puts her trust in Jesus Christ as her king. It is an amazing thing. When I was preparing this, I used a book by Mike Cain called Real Life Jesus, and in that, he tells the story of his grandmother coming to faith in her 70s. You're never too old to be a faith and trust in Jesus. By that point, she had had four husbands. So she was a bit like the woman of the well. And in her 70s, she put her faith and trust in Jesus. Here's what she said in a letter she wrote to Mike. All my life, I've been looking for joy. And now in Jesus, I have the happiness I longed for. I have found joy. Joy wasn't just an emotion or a spiritual affection. That was her name. All her life, she says, I've been looking for joy. Looking for myself. Looking for who I truly am. And when I found Jesus, in effect, I found myself. I found out who I really am in him. You see, we then move from being so focused on ourselves, our agenda, our comfort, that we look up and we see that there's a God who not only made us, but he loves us. There's a God who's not far away, he's near. 
There's not a God who's like their stern judge to beat us, but a God who's a father with arms wide open and a smile on his face who delights in you, who loves you, and who will never let you go. And so we then get the next part of this story. And the disciples come back and they're surprised to see Jesus talking to this woman. But we get our third thing here because we're going to see that a life worth living now is faithful to the work of the son. The scene split, and the woman heads off. You can see she's no longer interested just in physical water, because John says she actually left her jar behind. She's like, right, I've got to go. Uh, this water's no good. They've got to get this water. So she runs back to the village, and the very thing that used to shame her, the thing that cut her off from others, she puts front and center. Do you see? Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this man be the Messiah? And they come out towards Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus is talking to his disciples saying, look, your mission's going to be to get the message about me out. You're going to have to tell people what's going on here. You'll have to go here, there, and everywhere. You'll have to go to people you don't like. People like the Samaritans need to hear the good news. Everyone needs the good news. Get going. And you're going to go to places where actually you're just going to go in there and they're going to believe. And you're not going to believe your eyes when you see the power of this at work. You're basically going to reap where other people have done the hard work, and you're going to see the rewards. When I was younger, I used to play rugby. That's going to be a surprise to many of you. And uh, I used to play with an England international, um, a youth international. And I remember one game we were playing. I can't remember what position I was playing in those days. I've shrunk over the years. Uh, so uh, basically, we were playing a match against another school. And this guy, Dave Lewis, just destroyed the entire opposition team. I was watching him basically run over people. They were bouncing off him. And I don't quite know why, but I was basically just following him in case something went wrong, you know, which it never did. So I was basically running after him, and he was running, and I was trying to get out of the way of the debris behind him. And I wound up on the try line about the same time he did as he burnt along the back with the ball and was about to score a try. And he saw me there kind of looking helpless and longing. And he just smiled at me and he just tossed me the ball. And amazingly, I caught it. And I just threw myself down between the posts, totally unnecessarily. And I scored my only try of the season. And uh, who did all the hard work? Who did the heavy lifting in the hard yards? It wasn't me, was it? It was Dave Lewis. Who got the try next to his name on the board at the end of the year? Me. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, a lot of work's gone on before you, thousands of years in cases of sowing, telling people that to expect the Messiah's coming. I'm here now. And you're going to see amazing things. And that's where this story finishes. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. Do you see? The very thing that shamed her became the thing Jesus used for his glory. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the savior of the world. He's not just a prophet. He's not just one who's come as king. He's also one who's come as savior of the world. And this Samaritan village put their faith and their trust in him. How does God do that? How does he work in that amazing way in people's lives? 
How did it begin for this woman? Do you remember? It's the middle of the day, wasn't it? There was Jesus. Did you notice that John points out that he was tired? Did you notice that? And he was thirsty. He asked her actually for a drink of water, didn't he? And that's where this began. But it's not the last time in John's gospel that Jesus says, I am thirsty. Right at the end of the gospel, in chapter 19, Jesus is nailed to a cross. And from the cross, he cries out, I am thirsty. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that Jesus there opened the door for us to know a life that is worth living. But to do so, he paid a cost that this woman could never know. She saw a prophet and a king and a savior of the world. But to save us, Christ had to die. He was cut off so that we might be brought near. He walked into darkness so that his light might come into our hearts. He tasted death so that we might know eternal life. He bore our shame for the worst moments in our lives so that we might know the greatest honor any human being can know that you would be called a son or daughter of the living God. There is no greater title on earth. Director of BP comes and it goes. Prime Minister comes and it goes. Even monarch of this country will come and will go. But if you're here this morning and you trust Jesus, you're a child of God and you will be for all eternity. You can be full of his spirit. You can focus on your Father in heaven anytime, any place, anywhere. And you can take this good news of Jesus Christ and continue his mission because there are many others in this world who don't yet know him and he won't return until they do. Let me pray. Father, it's a wonderful story and we love the way that Jesus treats this lady because, Lord, we know there are things in our lives that shame us. Lord, when I think of the worst things I've done, they shame me and continue to shame me. And yet on the cross... There, Jesus, you died for me, for this sinner. And you made me a son of your Father in heaven. And Father, I want to thank you. You've done that for so many in this place. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We are subjects of the King of Kings. We are those who are temples of the Holy Spirit and all because of what you have done. And Father, I want to pray that you'd help us to live in that reality. Help us not to be satisfied with less. Help us to stop living for things that will pass. Teach us what it means to live for Jesus. And Lord, for any here today who don't yet know him, for any who are on the outside looking in, Lord, as you reach down to this woman, may you reach down to them here this morning and help them to see how much you love them, how much that you paid that they might have life and have it to the full. Help them to trust in you here, to give over all that shames, all that drags us down, all that means that we're broken, and instead to live in the wholeness and fullness and joy of Jesus. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.